Let's look in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. And I'm going to read through the end of this chapter. I'm just going to read straight through. If I don't, I'll never finish these scriptures. I want to cover all of these scriptures, so I'll read them and then come back to them. It says in verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God." And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us." If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Praise the Lord. Boy, those are some awesome passages of Scripture. There's some things in here that I could spend weeks developing and just talking about these things. I'm going to try and sum this up in three nights' period of time, but... You know, as you start talking about the love of God, I had a woman in my office just last week. Her and her son came in. This woman's in her mid-60s. And as I was talking to her and trying to minister to her, I was trying to explain the love that God has for her. And, and she wasn't rebellious towards what I was saying. She understood mentally, intellectually, that, that she needed more of a revelation of God's kind of love. But she began to explain to me that when she was... I, I may have some of the details wrong, but it was very similar to this. I think it was six months old. Her mother died, or no, her father died at six months old, and her mother left her at eight months old and abandoned her. And so she was abandoned. She was raised in foster homes. She never was loved, etc. So she grew up like this. Then she married a man that abused her and uh, neglected her, and her son was sitting there with her, and, her, and the son was saying that the father was one of these guys that always provided, and he didn't do uh, terrible things, but there was no emotion, no love. He never said a kind word. Everything was always critical, etc. Anyway, this woman was 60-something years old, had never known love in her life. And as I was telling her about God loved her, she was just having a hard time getting it. And she began to start explaining to me where she came from. And she was just struggling with this concept of love. And basically what I began to tell her, I told her, I said, you've got so many wrong concepts about love that even when a person uses the term love, it just doesn't mean anything to you. It's like we're speaking different languages. You know, it's just like over in the UK. I go over there real often, and they speak the same language, but it's not the same language. 
Man, I have learned that some of my little expressions I use over here are not good in the UK. I've said some things that, boy, people just, <gasps> I mean, they suck all the air out of that building when I say it. And I can tell I did something wrong. And it just, I'm using the same words, but it means something different over there than it means over here. You never say bummed out in the UK. That's very bad, very bad. You don't ever say something like, I'm stuffed, which they asked me how the people were treating me that I was staying with. And I said, oh, they're feeding me good. I'm stuffed. <laughs> I had to apologize for 30 minutes over that one. <laughs> you know, it, what I'm saying is, it's the same words. The words are recognizable, but the words mean different things to different people. And there's some people that when we say love, your concept of love and what the Bible is saying love are two different things. Actually, there's three different words in the Bible used for love. There's four different Greek words for love. Three of them are used in the Bible, and they show different types of love. Like we say things like, I love my wife, I love uh, steak, and I love my dog all at the same time, you know, and hopefully there's a different shade of meaning to those kind of words. <laughs> but we use love to describe all kinds of things, and there's a lot of us that I'm sure we think, oh yeah, I know that God loves me, but the truth is that we've, we've got misunderstandings about love, and we uh, have not really understood the depth of God's kind of love. If we had, it would, it would totally revolutionize our life. You know, we have a condition in the body of Christ that I call spiritual dyslexia, which some of you, I don't know if you know what dyslexia is, but that's a physical condition that causes people specifically when, it, when you read to see things exactly opposite the way they are. Instead of reading from left to right, a person with dyslexia will see things from right to left. Like the word God, G-O-D, a dyslexic person will see D-O-G, dog, instead of God. There's a difference between dog and God, amen? They're exactly the same letters, but if you get them turned around backwards, you see a dog instead of God. There's a huge difference. And you know, in the spiritual realm, there's a spiritual condition of dyslexia that when you say God, religion has infected us with this spiritual dyslexia that we see things backwards. We see things exactly opposite of what God is saying. Some of you are looking at me with a blank stare like, Brother, what are you talking about? Well, let me illustrate this in these verses that we just read. Let me go back and show you some things here about God's kind of love. And uh, I believe if you'll um, listen, you'll see that we all have been exposed to this disease. <laughs> Amen? You've got to diagnose the disease before you can get the cure. In verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You know the way that most people read this? Most people look at this and say, Well, man, if you don't love then uh, you don't know God. It says in verse 7, Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. I want to be born of God and I want to know God, so what do I have to do? The thing I've got to do is love. And if I love people, then I can be born of God and know God. Did you know that that is exactly opposite what this verse is saying? Opposite. This verse isn't saying that loving other people will cause you to be born of God and to know God. It's saying just the opposite. That if you knew God, if you were born of God, and if you come to know Him in an intimate way, loving people is just a byproduct. It just happens. There's a huge difference between what I just said. Some of you are saying, duh. <laughs> Amen. Like, what's the difference? There is a huge difference. One is saying that doing good things 
living and walking in love towards other people will cause me to be loved of God. But this verse is actually saying that if you could understand the love that God has for you, it will cause you to automatically walk in love towards other people. One is saying that your actions towards other people causes God to respond to you. The other way is saying that your response to understanding that God already loves you causes you to respond to Him. They're totally different things. And sad to say, most of the time when we talk about love, most of the uh, emphasis on love is placed on how we should love God and how we should love other people with the uh, understanding that if I'll just do these things, then God will love me. And that is wrong, wrong, wrong. That is anti-Christ. That is against the message of the Bible. What that is doing is putting the burden of salvation, the burden of relationship with God on your back. And that's exactly opposite what this context of Scripture is saying right here. Like it goes on down in verse... um, Let's see, it says... Where is this? I know it's right here. I just read it. Praise God. Verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do you define love? How do you understand love? By talking about what we do for God? No, it has to be talking about what God has done for us. God so loved us that He gave. It's not up to you to give. See, most of us think that if I just love God and if I love people, then God will respond to me and I'll experience God's pleasure. That's wrong. It also says right here in this same context, if you go down to verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. You can't give away what you don't have. Many of you have heard a lot of teaching on the subject of marriage about how you're supposed to love your mate. And every time I hear people teach on this, lots of times what they're saying is exactly right and it's good teaching. But if a person hasn't really experienced God's love in your heart in a supernatural, real way, you are teaching people things that are actually going to push them further down under depression and discouragement and condemnation. Because if you're telling them about how they should live towards other people without giving them the experience that enables them to live that way, it's just setting them up for failure. It's just another defeat. We're telling people to give something that they don't have. Most of us have never really experienced God's supernatural type of love the way that God wants to give it, and yet we've got this spiritual dyslexia to where every time we see something about love, we read that, man, if I just love other people, then I'll dwell in God and God will dwell in me. It's wrong. It's saying just the opposite. If you take this in context, the fourth chapter of 1 John is telling you how to recognize deception. It's talking about judging the spirits, trying the spirits. How do you try a spirit? Well, in other words, he's he's saying right here in context, he says, look at their love. He says, if they really are born of God and if they know God, not just being born again, but if they've matured, if they've gone on, if they have experienced God in them, then they will automatically love. And he's saying this for the purpose of how can you tell if a person is real? Judge their love. Man, if they're walking in God's supernatural love, you can guarantee that they got it from God. There is nowhere else that you get that. That isn't human. It's not natural. It comes directly from God. So he's not telling you that walking in love towards other people will cause God to love you, but rather he's saying these things to get you to understand that if you would just understand, receive God's supernatural love for you, then you would, act, you would fulfill holiness towards other people more accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. 
This takes all the struggle out of the Christian life. The Christian life is not something that you have to struggle to do. If you are struggling, if you're fighting to live the Christian life, it's because you are trying to live for God instead of letting God live through you. See, Paul said, it's not me that's living, but it's Christ living in me. The Christian life isn't hard to live. It's impossible to live. It is humanly impossible to live. If you're trying to love your mate as Christ loved the church, which the Scripture says to do, and if you're trying to do it out of your natural ability, I can promise you, you cannot do it. You'll be frustrated every time. But if you experience God's supernatural love and just let God love you, you'll find out it'll give you a supernatural ability that you didn't have on your own. And you, you can turn around and love the very person that hates you, love the very person that's doing things wrong to you, But see, the emphasis has to be turned around. Instead of talking about how you should act, and if you'll act right, God will respond to you, we need to just run up the white flag and surrender and say, God, I I give up. I'm a failure. I couldn't live right. I can't do these things. God, just reveal your love for me, totally independent of me. I'm not going to earn it. I'm not going to work for it. God, just show me how much you love me. And then once you experience this unconditional, supernatural type of love, you will find out that it'll just flow out of you. You know, I grew up in a church. I got born again when I was eight years old, and it was a genuine conversion when I was in the third grade. I was made fun of for being a Christian. I mean, it stuck, and I have sought God my entire life. I've never taken a drink of liquor, never smoked a cigarette, never said a word of profanity in all my life, never even tasted coffee. Amen. That's the truth. Never tasted coffee. I'm not saying that coffee and booze are the same thing. You got scriptures to stand on to drink coffee. Mark chapter 16, verse 18 says that you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. Amen. <laughs> I'm just saying, man, I lived a super holy life. But you know what? I developed this mentality that I was living holy trying to get God to love me. I was pursuing God, not understanding that God was pursuing me. You know, it's amazing how religion, once again, turns everything around. Religion gives us so many weird ideas. I tell you, that's the only way you get this spiritual dyslexia from, it's from close association with religion. <laughs> and if it's not treated, it'll be terminal. It'll kill you. I tell you, religion stinks. Christianity and religion are two different things. But I was raised in a church, and I was doing all the right things. But my mindset, I was doing it trying to earn God's favor, always seeking after God, always pursuing God, when the truth is that God was pursuing me, and I wasn't sharp enough to know it. We say things like, I found God. I want you to know God wasn't one that was lost. (laughs) It's you that got found. God has been seeking after you. But we say things like, I found the Lord. No, he wasn't lost. It's you that got found. God has been pursuing you your whole life. And here I was trying to earn the favor of God. Every time they gave an altar call, I was down there. I hit the altar every time. I rededicated my life so many times that if there would have been a rededicator, I'd have broken mine. I mean, I'd have worn it out. I'd rededicate my life every night. Every night during a meeting, I'd do the same thing. I was seeking after God, but I just never was content. I never felt like I was obtaining. I was never receiving from God, and there was an emptiness and a frustration in my life. And then on March the 23rd, 1968, God supernaturally revealed himself to me at uh, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock midnight in a Baptist pastor study in Arlington, Texas. I can't even tell you still. It's been, let's see, what would that be? 68 to now is how many years? 
27 years ago, and I still haven't understood it. But God poured His love out on me in a way that was awesome. For four and a half months, I didn't even know that anything else existed. I didn't consciously eat or sleep. I had a horse that I rode every day of my life. I wouldn't miss it. Rain, snow, sleep, anything. I rode that horse every day. And it was four and a half months later before I even remembered that horse. I didn't know if it was still alive, if anybody had fed this horse. I just lost track of everything because God loved me. And the thing that really changed my thinking was is that I didn't do anything to earn this. If it would have been in one of the peak times in my life, then I could have taken some... I mean, it would have fit my theology because I understand. God, no wonder you love me. I'm such a wonderful person. <laughs> Wise choice. But boy, the Lord loved me at a time that I was at my worst. I was at my very worst. God just revealed to me supernaturally how sorry and how hypocritical everything I was and everything I'd done. I was leading more people to the Lord than the pastor of the church. But, you know, I didn't care a thing about those people. I was just having them repeat a prayer after me. You know, you can get a lot of people to repeat a prayer after you if you, go, if you know the right way to do it. You just go up and talk to them and say, is there any good reason why you can't pray with me right now? And there's very few people that will say, yes, leave me alone. I want to go to hell. <laughs> They'll repeat after you, and then you just grab their scalp and go back and say, I led another one to the Lord. Praise God. Man, I had it down pat. I knew how to manipulate people and how to do things, but I wasn't doing it because I loved those people. I didn't give a rip about those people. I didn't care if they went to heaven or hell. I was concerned about me. I was trying to get recognition, and I was trying to show the Lord why, how good I was, all in an effort to get God to love me. It was all self-motivated. I know nobody in here could relate to that, could you? <laughs> You know, when we teach on leading somebody to the Lord, I honestly believe that if you have to have classes and if you have to teach people and motivate them to go out and be a witness and share their faith with somebody, that, man, something is desperately wrong. Have you ever seen a little kid that gets a brand-new toy for Christmas and your parent sits them down and says, Now you go out and tell all of your friends how good your dad was to give you this brand-new bike. And you make sure you let them know that your bike is better than their bike. Make sure you tell them how much it cost. It's just the opposite. We have to sit our kids down and say, Don't try and make your friends feel bad because you got a brand-new bike and they don't. Things like that. You know why? Because they, they appreciate what they've got and they're excited about what they've got. If you're having to pump somebody up and motivate them, go out and share your faith. You know what the problem is? That person hasn't really understood. They haven't ever got a glimpse of what they've got. We used to hear songs, you know, about will there be any stars, any stars in my crown when at evening at last I lay down. And another one said, must I go in empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? And they'd preach, and then they'd talk about your neighbor someday as he's drug off to hell. Right before he gets thrown into the pit, he's going to stick his finger in your face and say, Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? And then you give the altar call to men. People fill the altars. You know why? It's not because they love people. It's because they love themselves. And they say, Oh, God, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to stand before you and be shamed. So that's the way we use self, selfish motivation to motivate people to be witnesses. That's wrong. You know, the thing that compelled Paul, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, the love of Christ constrains me. The thing that caused him to lay down his life is because he had experienced God's love in such a real way that I promise you, if you ever experience, and I'm not talking about 
intellectually, there is an experiential knowledge of God's kind of love. If you ever experience it, it will light a fire on the inside of you that will cause you to go to the end of the world to lay down your life to do anything because of God's supernatural love for other people. It will cause you to neglect your own life to lay it down for other people. And brothers and sisters, this is what the body of Christ is missing today. You know, we've got tremendous programs. Man, we've got technology. We've got advantages today that the early New Testament church didn't have. And I believe that if Jesus was here, he'd use all of them. I'm on radio. I'm on television. I use cassette tapes, videos. I believe that we should use all of it. But I'm saying that with all of our great advantages, our technology, we haven't impacted our world. You haven't impacted Chicago near the way that the early New Testament church impacted their world, and they didn't have any of these things. They didn't have bumper stickers on every camel that was crossing the desert. (laughs) Man, they didn't have radio beaming into people's homes. They didn't have any of the things that we've got, and yet they changed the known world. In 30 years, I've read a historical statement by somebody who was written about 60 A.D., and they said that the city of Carthage in Egypt was over 90% Christian in 30 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The known world was discipled. In 30 years, they radically changed it. They brought down the mightiest nation on the face of the earth, not through military might, but through the people being converted. They were being converted at such a large rate that eventually the Roman Empire became a Christian nation. And, of course, there was a lot of deception, a lot of uh, false stuff in that, but nonetheless, it brought down this nation that at one time was the persecutor of Christians. How did they do that? They did it without the huge budgets They did it without all of the advantages that we've got. You know, the difference was those people were on fire with the love of God. They knew God in a way that made people long for what they have. Most of us, what we're sharing is doctrine. We tell people, come to the Lord and get happy like me. (laughs) And people look at you and it has to be the Holy Ghost to make them get saved because they sure couldn't see it in your life. But you know, the early New Testament church had such a vibrancy because they knew the Lord. I've been to Rome, and I remember going through the catacombs and looking in the catacombs and seeing the inscriptions. They had to bury their dead in the catacombs because the Romans hated the Christians, and they would deface the graves, and they'd dig them up and stuff. And so they would bury their dead in the catacombs, and they had all of these inscriptions on these tombs. And um, they had them translated into all these different languages. And I remember reading one where a man said, here lies my wife and six-months-old daughter who gave their life for the glory of God in the Circus Maximus today. He wrote it like a honor, like it was a badge of honor to say that his wife and six-month-old daughter died for the glory of God. Well, I remember reading that and the Lord touching me and saying, man, they had something that is different than what most people today have. You know, it is a historical account that for every person that they burned at the stake or threw to the lions, that Romans, as many as six or seven Romans, would jump out of the stands and run out there and take their place knowing that it meant instant death because they had such joy and such peace in their life, even as they were being burned to death. They would literally run stakes up through the rear of people and impel them on stakes and burn them. And then the people would have such joy and peace. There's an actual account of Nero sticking his fingers in his ears and crying out and saying, why do these Christians sing? 
They sang as they were being burned to death, as they were being thrown to the lions. There's thousands and thousands of accounts of the joy and of the peace that they had as they were dying. You know why? Because they had such a relationship with God. It was more than doctrine. It was more than knowledge. And I see people today, man, just totally discouraged, ready to quit because they don't have a brand new car and God hadn't come through for them and you've suffered so badly that you're ready to give up. Man, our relationship with the Lord is shallow. We haven't experienced the love of God the way that we should. All of our emphasis is on what God can do for us, and it's because you haven't understood and really experienced the love of God. When I experienced God's love that night, it radically, radically changed my life forever. I mean, instantly. I knew the next morning I got up in front of my Baptist church, and I said, I have no way of knowing what happened. I can't tell you what happened, but I'll never be the same. I told them, I said, I don't care if I'm a janitor or what I do the rest of my life, it's going to be done with all of my heart for God I was instantly changed. I had no direction, no different knowledge, but man, the love of God just instantly transformed my life. It was radical. And you know, that's what we need, is just to experience the love of God. Instead of us trying to earn it, see, I'd been trying to earn it prior to this time, and the thing that changed my life was God just gave it to me. It isn't something that you earn. You can't deserve, you can't get worthy of God's kind of love. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. God loves you because He is love. And most of us won't let God love us. Most of us, our thinking hinders God from loving us because we just have it set in our mind that to receive the love of God, I've got to do all of these things and then God will love me. God does not love you based on what you've done. He doesn't love you proportional to what you've done. God commended His love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you, Romans 5, 8. God's love, in this was manifested the love of God. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, that's awesome. I'll tell you what I'm saying is simple, but it's profound. It really is. Brothers and sisters, we need to experience God's love. Before you can be the blessing that you're intended to be, you've got to be blessed. That's what God told Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. I will bless you and make you a blessing. We're trying to be a blessing, and we haven't been blessed ourselves. We have, but we haven't experienced it. We haven't really walked into it and understood it and experienced the love of God. Man, instead of you focusing on all of the things that you need to do, you need to just let God become real to you and let God's love become a revelation to you. And and once you understand that, I guarantee you, you will change your world, change your life. Look at another passage of Scripture here in verse 12. 1 John 4, 12 says, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. People read this verse and say, Well, I want God to dwell in me, and I want His love to be perfected, so what I need to do is love one another, and then God's love will be perfected in me. No, this verse is saying just the opposite. It's saying that if you would just come to know God and experience Him, and let His love be perfected in you, then you will love one another. If you're walking in strife with someone, I can guarantee you that you have not really got a revelation of God's kind of love. This is what Jesus taught in the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew, where He was talking about this guy that was forgiven $10 million worth of debt, and then He walked out and turned on a person that owed Him $10, and He wouldn't forgive them, threw them into jail, didn't have any mercy on them. 
And when the Lord heard that, he went back and he put this man, he put his debt back on him and threw him into jail. And the Lord said, so will your heavenly Father do if you don't from your heart forgive others. In other words, this man had been forgiven a great debt and yet it didn't even affect him. It did, he didn't see the love behind it. All he saw was the selfish part of it. And he didn't turn around and give the same thing to other people. The reason that we aren't loving and, un and forgiving towards other people is because we have not truly understood it ourselves. The reason some of you are mean as a snake is because you have never understood God's love for you. You've never truly experienced and understood the depths of what forgiveness is. And so you're just treating people the way you feel. You feel perplexed and rejected and all of these things, and you're giving it to other people. Amen or oh me. Look in verse 16. It says, We have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. All of us want to dwell in God and have God dwell in us. So what do you do? Love more? No, this is saying just the opposite. That if you would just understand that God loves you and focus on that and let it become a revelation to you, then you will walk in love towards other people. Verse 20 says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? People see that verse and they say, Man, I've got to start walking in love or I'm going to be a liar and I won't really love God. So I'm going to start loving others. And by loving these people, it'll make me love God. Wrong. It's saying just the opposite. That loving God will make you love other people. A person that is, says that I understand, I receive, I've got a revelation of God's love, and yet you've got unforgiveness, anger, bitterness in your heart, you have not understood God's kind of love. Once you understand God's kind of love, once you experience it, I guarantee you, you will forgive. You will walk in love towards other people. If you're having a hard time forgiving somebody, if you're holding a grudge, you need a revelation of God's love for you. Isn't that simple? Well, let me show you some more scriptures on this. Look over the, first, the second chapter of 1 John. Verse 3, And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. See, it's the exact same principle. Most people read that and say, Man! I want to know Him, so what I've got to do is keep His commandments, and that'll, that'll, make me, that'll make me know Him. No, this is saying just the opposite. How do you know if you really know Him? It'll manifest itself in you keeping the commandments of God. You'll find out that holiness is a fruit, not a root of salvation. Holiness doesn't make God love you, but loving God makes you live holy. If you see a deficiency in your life, in the area of holiness. What you need to do instead of trying to, oh, look, man, I've got to live holier so God will love me. This is where the body of Christ is. Trying to be holy and worthy so that God will love them. When you see a deficiency in your holiness, what you need to do is just go back and say, God, I'm not understanding your great love for me. Well, I just feel like some of you are, are getting a tiny glimpse of this, but it hadn't quite dawned on you yet. Here's another one. Verse 4, he says, He that saith, I knoweth him, and keepeth it not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So what does that make you want to do? Well, I'm going to start keeping the commandments so I won't be a liar. No, it's the opposite. Know him, and you'll find out that you will keep his commandments. And anybody that says that they really know him and you aren't living holy, you don't really know him. Knowing God will cause you to live holy. Boy, this is simple. You know, most Christians, their entire life is focused on sin and overcoming sin. They're struggling to overcome sins and the temptations of the flesh. 
God never, never, ever intended that to be the focus of the Christian life. Man, if you're struggling with sin and struggling with lust and struggling with problems and you're trying to put them down and you're just feeling so frustrated, you know what the problem is? You don't really know God. You don't know how much He loves you. If you ever experienced how much God loves you, I guarantee you, you won't want to go live in sin. A person who's got a strong desire on the inside of them for sin, what's the right approach? To get angry and bitter and start resisting that sin? The proper approach is to just go to God and say, God, there must be a deficiency in my life. Knowing you and understanding you, why would I want something that's going to destroy me and destroy other people? You know, sin isn't smart. Sin is emotional. It's not smart. If a person sat down and thought about what they're doing, nobody would go live in sin. Ask Jimmy Swaggart. If he would have been thinking smart, look what he gave up. Look, what, look at all that man's loss. Look at Jim Baker. Look what they've lost for just a little bit of sin. Stupid. Sin isn't smart. It's emotional. When a person is struggling with sin, you've got a severe problem. You have never really understood and had intimate relationship with God. That's the bottom line. So when you see a struggle with sin and a lust in your life for something, the thing to do instead of getting condemned and going, oh, God, I've got to resist harder, I've got to fight harder, what you need to do is go to the Lord and say, God, I'm just going to separate myself for a while. Maybe fast and pray for a day and get my attention back on you because I'm not, I'm not really understanding you and relating to you the way it should or I wouldn't even have these desires and lusts. You'll find out that when your heart is stayed on the things of the Lord, when you're experiencing the love of God, it purifies your motives. It purifies your heart. Boy, if you just keep on reading all of these verses. Verse 5, it says, Whosoever keepeth in his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. People with this spiritual dyslexia read that and say, Well, man... I want to have the love of God perfected in me, so what I'm going to do is keep His Word. This verse is saying just the opposite. It's trying to tell you that, hey, if you just come to know Him, if you would really know the Lord, you'll find out that you'll keep His Word. You can tell this. A person that is keeping the Word, it's because they know God. It's because they have a relationship with God. It's not that the actions produce the relationship. The relationship produces the actions. We've had the cart before the horse. We've been trying to do this thing backwards. And because of it, frustration and condemnation have been coming into our life. If you took all of the book of 1 John and read it, he starts off in the first chapter and he says, that which we have seen and heard. He's not preaching doctrine. He says, I'm trying to present a person to you and a personal relationship. He says in verse 3, he says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, I'm saying these things so that you can come into intimate, close, personal relationship with God. That's what the whole book of John is written from. John is the apostle that was called the apostle who loved, the one whom God loved. John wrote that over in the book of John four different times. He talked about the one whom God loved. That's, John is called the beloved apostle. John had a revelation of love, and he says, I'm writing these things to you to show you what love, what relationship with God is all about. See, he didn't bring people into a doctrine. Brothers and sisters, so much of what we call Christianity today is condemning people, beating them over the heads, preaching to them that, man, God's a holy God and you're an unholy person and if you don't repent, you're going to hell and we call that the gospel. That is not the gospel. That's the truth, but it's not the gospel. Gospel means good news. 
There is no good news in the fact that you're going to hell. And yet, that's what the church has been using to turn people from hell. They're scaring people out of hell. And I tell you what, it's better to scare them out of hell than to let them go to hell. So I'm not 100% opposed to that. But because of that, what you do, you teach people, you condition them that the reason they came to God was because of crisis in their life. They were going to hell. And man, they use God as an escape valve when they come into crisis in their life. And you condition people that that's what... Christianity is all about. And then once they get born again, and now that they're happy and they're free and they aren't going to hell, they go their own way and wait until crisis hits before they come back and seek the Lord. And that's where the body of Christ is. They're using the Lord in crisis. They haven't understood that the Lord, if there was no hell, still coming to Jesus and coming to know Jesus would be the greatest thing in your life if there was no punishment, if there was no sin. The Lord came to do much more than forgive you of sin. In John 3.16, I've got a tape on this. I hadn't got time to teach on it, but I've got a tape entitled Eternal Life. You ought to get it. It would transform your life. But it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Most people put a period right there and say that God sent his Son so that you wouldn't perish, so that you won't die and go to hell. That's not what that verse says. It says he sent his Son to, so that you would not perish but have everlasting life. And what is everlasting life? Is that living forever? Couldn't be, because the Bible says we now have everlasting life. Hitler's living forever. Everlasting life, according to John 17, 3, it says, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Everlasting life is intimate, personal relationship with God. And it just so happened that your sin was a barrier that stood between you and God. And so God did make atonement for your sins, and He did forgive your sins. But forgiveness of sins is not the goal of salvation. It's just a necessary obstacle that you have to overcome so that you can enter into close, intimate, personal relationship with God. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whosoever believeth on Him would not perish, but have in its place everlasting life. God gave Himself to bring you into close, personal relationship with Him. If all you did was get forgiven of your sins so that you won't go to hell, and you aren't experiencing the joy and the pleasure of God, you are missing eternal life. I'm not saying that you aren't going to heaven. I'm not saying that you aren't born again. But you're waiting on it all to take place up there. God loved you so much that He didn't want you to go to hell, but He wanted you to come into relationship with Him. The body of Christ, because salvation has been departmentalized into let's get people saved. And let's make that our our goal. That's the thing we're majoring on. God never divided salvation up into just forgiveness of sins. And then you go on into these other things. God came to give you a package deal. God came to forgive your sins so that you could enter into close relationship with Him. And see, that's the reason that the first century church turned their world around is because they entered beyond just the door of salvation. They got into close, intimate, personal relationship with God, so much so that they were actually feeling God's pleasure as they were being martyred. And they were worshiping and praising God, and people were so convicted by it. They longed for what they had so much that they were willing to go out and die to get what they had. How many of your neighbors would die to get what you have? Is it possible that maybe we haven't experienced eternal life? We aren't letting the love and the joy and the peace of God flow through us so that it's really making it attractive? 
Boy, on and on I could go with this. Let's turn over to John, the 14th chapter. This is the same man writing. It's the Apostle John writing. And this is Jesus giving instructions to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he wrote John 14, 15, and 16 here. And he's saying some of the same things. If you'd look in John 14, first in verse 21, it says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Well, that's a tremendous promise. And people think, well, praise God. I want God to love me and to manifest himself to me. So what do I have to do? And they backtrack and say, I'm going to keep the commandments more. No, what he's saying here is, he says that if you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's again saying it different than the way most of us have seen this. Down in the 24th verse, he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. People read this and they think, well, man, I know I'm not keeping his sayings the way I should. And so I got to keep his sayings more so that he'll love me. No, it's saying just the opposite. It says that if love is already present, it will manifest itself through keeping the commandments. Anytime you see your life out of whack and that you're living in sin and that you aren't seeking God the way you should, instead of trying to increase your actions more, what you need to do is repent and just humble yourself and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Go back into love. Well, I know some of you still aren't getting this. You know, it's like a person that has a desire for adultery in their life. There's two ways to approach that. You can either approach adultery by coming to a person and saying, boy, if you're committing adultery, the wrath of God's coming on you. God's displeased with you. You're going to get it. You can start telling them about the possibility of AIDS and all the potential damage and all of these things. And you can tell them about all of the things out flesh that'll cost them. Or another approach is to get them to love their mate. And you know what? If they love their mate, they will not commit adultery. You know what? I am not even tempted to commit adultery because I love my mate with all of my heart. You can approach it from a number of different ways. A person that's struggling with the lust for adultery is a person that doesn't really have a love for their mate the way they should. If they had love for their mate, they wouldn't even have to struggle. It's not a fight. It's not hard to resist adultery if you truly love somebody, if you have God's supernatural love. Some of you are just looking at me with a blank stare like this is not computing. But once you understand this, it changes your whole life around. It makes the Christian life fun and easy to live instead of something that you got to force out. Look over in the 16th chapter of John. He said this in verse 8. Here's another example of spiritual dyslexia, how we totally, totally misunderstood Scripture and turned them around and said the opposite of what God is trying to say through them. In verse 8, it says, When he is come, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now again, religion has taught us that, man, the Holy Ghost is here to reprove you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Man, the Holy Ghost is going to show you when you get into sin, when you do something wrong, he's going to point every sin out in your life. He's going to point out to you when you have missed it, when you aren't walking in righteousness. He's going to convict you that you unholy thing, you're unrighteous, and he's going to show you the judgment of God is going to come upon you if you don't straighten up. That's the way people read that. And yet, he goes on and explains himself in the next verse. He spends three verses explaining these three areas. He says, of sin, because they believe not on me. The sin that God is going to convict you of is the sin of not really being in relationship with God the way that you should. Instead of the Lord coming and saying, man, you got adultery in your heart, repent or I'm going to get you, the Lord will come back and say, 
you don't understand me. You don't understand how much I love you. You wouldn't do things like this if you understood the love that I have for you. This is actually an uplifting thing. It's not a condemning thing. The Holy Ghost doesn't, the Holy Ghost doesn't come and nail you over every rotten thing that you ever do. Most of you call that the conviction of God. It's nothing but your own condemnation. The Holy Ghost is not the one that's making you feel rotten. He convicts you. What he'll do is bring you back to the fact that, hey, you need to get back into love with God. You need to return to your first love. because That's the reason that you're living the way that you are. Let me give you an illustration. I'm going to come back to this, but look over in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is talking about David and Bathsheba when he committed the adultery with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Chapter 11 is where he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murdered Bathsheba's husband so that he could take Bathsheba to be his own wife. So he committed adultery and then murder to cover up his adultery. And in the 12th chapter, Nathan the prophet came to Daniel to uh, David, and he gave a parable saying that there was this rich man who had everything, thousands of cattle, sheep, everything. He had everything he could have ever desired. And yet, when somebody came to visit him, instead of taking one of his own sheep to kill for the person and to feed them, he went over to his neighbor that was so poor, he only had one little tiny sheep that he had nursed up in his own bosom. It was like a child to him. And he took that man's sheep and killed it to feed his friend. And David got so irate at this, he says, the man that has done this thing will die and he'll have to restore that sheep that he's killed fourfold or sevenfold, whatever it was. And he was just irate. And Nathan turned around and he says, you're the man. Boy, this was awesome. Look here in the uh, verse 7. Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul and I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives under thy bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. You know, as I was reading this one time, it just dawned on me. The Lord says, because you have despised me and done these things. You know, most people that sin, they don't think that they're despising the Lord. They don't look at it that way. I can say this based on my own children. Dealing with my children, they've done things, you know, you tell them to be in at a certain time. You tell them to do something and they come in later or they violate your standards and you, you tell them things like, man, this hurts. It hurts your mother and me to see these things. And they say, I didn't do anything to hurt you. If I did something, all I did was hurt myself. And it's just like they're brain dead. They cannot understand that it hurts me. They don't have any recollection. They don't have the understanding to realize that, man, I love them and I want the best for them and that it hurts me when they're out there destroying their life. I've heard people in our generation today saying things like, it's my life, I'm taking drugs, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. That's stupid. You're hurting anybody who loves you. By you destroying your life, by you being a failure, by you doing the things that you do, you are always affecting somebody else. And see, this is what the Lord will always bring you back to. The Holy Ghost will come and reprove you of sin. What sin? 
the sin that don't you understand that you've despised the Lord by doing this thing? God Almighty loves you. He redeemed you from this lifestyle. God wants only the best for you. God doesn't want you going out there and living like an animal, shacking up with people. God has one perfect relationship for you. He wants you to experience the joy and the freedom and the goodness of experiencing what it's like to have supernatural God kind of love. You're never going to get that with a harlot, with a prostitute. Then they talk about this Hugh Grant and this relationship he had with some prostitute and his live-in lover over in England rejected him over it. And I just thought, well, what's the difference? The only difference is he paid that woman for something that he's getting free from this other. They aren't married. They're both ungodly relationships. He didn't have anything. Anybody that'll live in a common law marriage like that, you don't know what God's kind of love is. Somebody says, brother, you don't have to have a piece of paper to be married in God's sight. Well, you ought to tell Jesus about it. Jesus talked to the woman at the well, and he said, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he says, you have correctly said, I do not have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. I can guarantee you they were cohabiting together. They were having physical relationship, and Jesus says, it's not marriage. He's not a husband. It does make a difference to make a physical commitment, to have a legal piece of paper, to do it recognized in the sight of God and in the sight of people. Jesus recognized it. The Lord desires for you to live with one mate because that's what God created you to be. He's just telling you what He made you to be, what's going to make you happy, and it grieves the Lord. And see, if you could understand it like this, that you despise the Lord when you do these things, that's what the Holy Ghost will bring you back to. He's not going to sit here and try and make you feel miserable about how sorry and how terrible you are. He'll bring you back and say, you aren't experiencing God's best. God loves you. God has more for you than this. Can't you see how you're destroying your life? Wake up. Over in the 39th chapter of the book of uh, Genesis. Let me turn to this real quick and read to you about Joseph. Joseph is a powerful example. 39th chapter of Genesis. Joseph had had these dreams about how God was going to promote him and how his brothers and father and mother would come and bow down and worship him. And because of this, his brothers hated hated him. They sold him into slavery. They started to kill him and finally decided to make some money off of him, sold him into slavery. He went down to Egypt, became a slave in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar exalted him and gave him control over all of his house because he could see that God was with him. But in the midst of this situation, a slave, somebody who had the dream of being someone that his brothers and father and mother was going to come bow down to, he was now a slave. It would have been easy for him to get discouraged and bitter over this thing. And in the midst of this situation, Potiphar's wife started lusting for Joseph. And while Potiphar was away on a trip, she started trying to entice Joseph to have a relationship with her. And Joseph kept putting her off and putting her off. And day after day, it wasn't just a one-time thing, it was a repeated thing. Did you know most of us... Most of us, because the reason that most people try and live holy is out of fear. Fear of being caught, fear of consequences. Well, listen to what I'm saying. This will change your life if you can get what I'm saying. It will radically change your life. Most people live holy because of fear of the consequences if they don't live holy. Fear of being caught. Fear of punishment. Fear of rejection. And even most Christians live holy because of fear that if I don't do this, God won't bless me. That fear has torment. We read those scriptures, 1 John 4, 18. If you are living holy because you're afraid of getting caught, you're tormented. 
you are not enjoying the freedom that God intended you to have. Notice what Joseph said here. Joseph said in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, he says, There is none greater in his house. He's talking to Potiphar's wife. Well, let's read verse 8. It says, But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wanteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in his house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He wasn't even thinking about Potiphar. You know what? He had a personal relationship with God. He knew that God had good plans for him. He knew that God was a good God. He had experienced the love of God. And he had a relationship with God. And he was going to live holy because God was with him. He was in a foreign land. He was a slave. How could it have gotten any worse? I mean, if punishment was his motivation, he could have said, what's worse than being a slave? Plus, this is a master's wife. Who's going to catch me? Nothing to lose. I talk to people all of the time that are in situations where under normal circumstances they would have lived holy, but because of pressure on their life, they just look at it as, well, I can't help it. I'm going to go live like this, and they feel justified. Joseph could have felt that way, but you know what kept him steady? Because he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? didn't matter whether his father ever found out about it, whether his people ever found out about it. God knew about it. You know, when I was in Vietnam... Man, it was unbelievable the temptations that were over there. Those of you that were in Vietnam or have been in the service somewhere else, you'll know what I'm talking about. And I mean, uh, they actually, the government brought in prostitutes and gave you all of the booze that you could drink so that you could get drunk and gave you bunkers that you could have all the sex that you wanted and it was government supported. Now, I know that most people don't accept that. They call them entertainers. But I guarantee you that's what they were. And out of a company of 200 people, every time we went on stand down, I'm the only person in my company, 200 and something people, that did not participate. And for three days, that's what it was, a drunken orgy. That's the kind of stuff that went on in Vietnam on a regular basis. And, you know, people talk about all of the Vietnam results. I can tell you a lot of it is just the guilt and the condemnation. But those people at the time, you were on the other side of the world, it looked like you're going to be killed any moment. What was there to live for? The chances of you making it back were slim. And see, because they were motivated out of fear, consequences, things like this, who's going to ever know? And I saw people that I went to church with, people that were good friends of mine back in the States that went ahead and succumbed and gave in to that temptation. You know why? Because they didn't have this relationship of love. I had a relationship of love. I wouldn't have done this because it would have been an offense. I would have sinned against God. God had created me for something better than that. And yet I saw other people that because their motivation was fear, well, the fear was gone. Who'd ever find out? It was the thing to do. I was ridiculed for it, made fun of a lot of times over those kind of things. Can you all understand the difference that I'm talking about? It's a huge difference. If you're only serving God because you've got to, you're trying to earn the favor of God, I guarantee you that fear of motivation is going to fail you. But love is a superior motivation. If you could ever understand how much God loves you, if you could understand that God made you holy and pure and God made you to experience good things and not to live a beggarly, low existence, man, it would cause you to live holy, not out of fear of punishment, but because, man, you love God. You, you, you don't want to disappoint Him. God's got faith in you. God's got faith in you. 
God's believing good things for you. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a hope and an expected end. God has good thoughts towards you. God has a perfect plan for your life. God has faith in you. He has things for you that you just could never imagine. God's love towards you is great. And if you could ever get a revelation of that, if you could ever understand God's love and pleasure in you, you'll go out and you'll start living holy because, man, you, you have a relationship that you don't want to do anything to hurt that. How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? When David finally repented after the Lord told him, says, you have despised me. I'm convinced that prior to that time, David thought, well, this is a sin against you Bathsheba or a sin against Uriah. And he probably knew that it wasn't exactly right, but he just hadn't connected it with the Lord. Man, when the Lord came to him, David humbled himself, repented. And you can read his repentance in the 51st chapter of Psalms. He wrote it when he repented over uh, Nathan coming to him. And he repented and he says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. Most of us would take issue with that and say, well, I would think that uh, you could say you did a sin against Bathsheba and you certainly sinned against Uriah. Most of us could argue with David and say, man, you didn't only sin against God, you sinned against people. You killed a person. And yet David, it wasn't that he was saying that there was no other effects, but he got the message. He realized, God, how could I have ever done this? How could I have ever forgotten the one that took me from following the sheep when I was nothing and made me king and gave me all of these things? How could I have ever sinned against you the way that I did? And that's what brought him back to this place with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we've missed it. We haven't understood the intimacy, the closeness with God. God is a person. He is not a force. He is not an entity. He's a person that loves you personally. He didn't save you because He felt obligated as Creator to do something for this mess that He had created. And he just did it out of a sense of debt or obligation to get to soothe his conscience. God saved you because he loves you intimately. He loves you, not just what you can do for him. He loves you. He wants personal relationship with you. He wants to know you closely. God wants to tell you every day that he loves you. You know, God is a good God. And yet most of us won't let God love us. I've actually been in meetings before where people's lives have been transformed. They've come up and told me and they just crying and I know that they'll never be the same and I leave and I mean dozens of people's lives are never going to be the same because of that meeting. And I've left meetings like that before and I remember one time in particular I was driving back to the hotel and I said, God, it's wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. And you know what the Lord said to me? He said, thank you, Andrew. Some of you think, oh, brother, that wasn't God. God would never say anything nasty. Man, God uses you, and you sorry thing, you ought to just be glad that he didn't rub you out. God would never say thank you to you. See, you don't understand love. You don't understand it. See, most of us, that's kind of the way we feel, is that I'm just an old worm. And Well, I tell you, I'm nothing in myself, but God loves me. God keeps my picture in his billfold. He's got an 8 by 10 of me on his mantle in heaven. God loves me, and he loves me even when I blow it. Even when I have sorry means, and I don't deliver, and I fail. 
You know, God tells me that He loves me. God loves me independent of how I act and what I do. I've come to realize something about the love of God that's much more than just knowledge, and it's changed my life. Man, if you ever understand that, it'll, it'll transform you. It makes everything different. I can just guarantee you that the vast majority of people in here have not got the attitude that I'm trying to convey and get across here. You're serving God out of fear and out of judgment and trying to earn something that's already a free gift to you. We just need to humble ourselves and say, God, reveal your love to me. God, help me to understand that you love me just the way I am. Go back to the 16th chapter of the book of John. He reproves of three things. The Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin. The sin, not individual acts of sin, but rather if you commit adultery, He's going to come back to you and say, Why are you doing this? Don't you understand the love that God has for you? Don't you understand God has something better than this planned for you? You're destroying your life. You're taking the good treasure that God's given you and you're, you're violating it. You're destroying what the good that God's given you. That's the way that the Holy Ghost reproves of sin. The next thing it says, of righteousness. Most people read this of unrighteousness. He's going to reprove you that you aren't righteous. It didn't say He reproves of unrighteousness. It says He reproves the world of righteousness. The Holy Spirit will come and tell you that you're righteous. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. God loves you. The Holy Ghost is sent to convict you of righteousness, not unrighteousness. Most of us have been in church services where people stand up and say, Boy, the, the Holy Ghost nailed me and showed me I was a sinner. And they stand up and repent and cry and just tell you how bad they were. All of us have been exposed to that. But how many of us have ever been to a church service where somebody stands up and says, Man, the Holy Ghost convicted me this week that I'm the righteousness of God. Showed me that I'm pleasing to God. That God, I'm accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians 1, 6. God Almighty loves me. I'm clean, just as if I've never sinned. I'm free. There's a lot of people in here that could raise your hand and say, I've never heard anybody do that. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to show you that you are righteous. And why did He say that? In verse 10, He says, Of righteousness, because I go to our Father and you see me no more. When Jesus was here on the earth... Jesus was constantly taking the woman in the very act of adultery. And instead of telling her how sinful he was, he showed love and mercy to her. And when she repented, he said, go and sin no more. Sin was the byproduct. But he extended love to her whether she had gone and sinned no more or not. He extended love to her right in the midst of adultery. He was constantly going in and fellowshipping with the harlots and the publicans and the sinners and showing people that, hey, I love you independent of your actions. Now that Jesus is gone and we can't see Him anymore, it's the specific job of the Holy Spirit to start telling you that God loves you in spite of who you are and in spite of what you've done. And yet most of us have exactly the opposite idea of the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Ghost is harsh and sent here to condemn you and show you every rotten thing in your life and convict you. And every time you're miserable, it must be the Holy Ghost on your case. I've had people come up to me before and say, man, I just don't feel like I've been to church unless you just walk all over my toes, unless I feel guilty and condemned. I just don't feel like I've been to church. What a terrible indictment about going to church. Man, going to church ought to be to tell you about how much God loves you, and it's the love of God. If you ever receive the love of God, then it will cause holiness as a byproduct. And the next thing he says that he'll reprove the world of judgment. Verse 11, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Most people read this, that the Holy Ghost is going to show you that you're going to be judged if you don't straighten up. If you don't get out of this sin, the Holy Ghost is going to get you. 
Most of us see God as a big angry God up there with a long beard with a club or something just waiting for you to get out of line. Man, he's going to blast you. I actually saw a cartoon in the paper where it showed an angel sitting there at a great computer and it had a guy walking with a big rock or something over his head and he was just getting ready to push the uh, button that said judgment. That's the way most people see God. Just re- you get out of line, his finger's already on the thing. It's just poised. Get out of line, bam, the wrath of God's going to get you. This is saying he'll reprove of judgment, not judgment on you, but judgment on Satan. He's going to tell you that, hey, the prince of this world is already judged. The one who's condemning you and telling you how sorry you are, why don't you tell him about his future? Amen. Why don't you remind him of his future? Why don't you remind him of what he's done instead of having him tell you about all the rotten things you've done? Man, the Holy Ghost is here to encourage you and build you up that your enemy, the devil, has been judged. He's the loser, not you. Brothers and sisters, God's love towards us is infinitely different than what most of us have perceived. Man, it is not a conditional love. God loves you unconditionally. God loves you and He longs for you. God doesn't pity you as some creator. He loves you as a father. God, if, if your life is in a mess, if you're living in sin, if you're destroying your life, God is going to convict you in a loving way and show you about, please don't do this because I love you and this is destroying your life. You know, you can take like physical things like uh, smoking as an example of this. You know, there's two ways to approach somebody that smokes. You can either condemn them and say, man, if you smoke a cigarette, you're defiling the temple of wrath of God's coming on you. God's going to get you. And you can judge people that way. And you can get some people to stop smoking because people are already conditioned towards fear. They can respond to that. But, you know, it's not the truth. You do not go to hell for smoking a cigarette. You just smell like you've been there. Smoking a cigarette is not going to send you to hell. Did you know that that is a cultural deal? I may be popping somebody's bubble right here. Somebody, oh, brother, no, sir, this is in the Word of God. Show me a scripture on it. Well, the only thing you can show is scriptures about your body being the temple of the Lord and take care of it. Did you know that being overweight is worse than smoking? It'll kill you quicker than smoking. Now, both of them will kill you. I mean, you know, getting killed is getting killed. But being overweight is just as bad as smoking. It's a cultural thing that has made smoking a terrible taboo. You know, when you go into... uh, I was in Austria, and I ministered in Austria. And in Austria, it's really something because they drink beer and wine things like like a fish. I actually ministered to over 100 people that they all had lagers of beer on their table while I was preaching, and they were drinking pint after pint of beer as I was preaching. (laughs) The Christians don't think a thing about drinking over there. In our society, that's terrible. But over there, drinking booze is nothing. But you know what? In Austria, if you drink coffee, you go directly to hell. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. They cannot understand how a Christian could ever taste coffee. The Christians over there would never touch coffee, but they'll drink booze like crazy. You go into Romania, and over in Romania, they drink coffee and booze, but if you smoke a cigarette, you go directly to hell. You cannot be a Christian and smoke a cigarette. 
So the point that I'm making is, hey, you are not going to hell for smoking a cigarette. You know the proper way to approach somebody over that is to just approach them and say, hey, do you want to smoke? And 99.9% .9 of people will say, no, I really don't. I know I'm killing myself. I actually read a thing. It shortens your life. I think it's seven minutes or something for every cigarette you smoke. It shortens your life. Most people know stuff like that, and most people would like to quit, but they become addicted to it psychologically or physically or whatever. And so you can just go to them and say, hey, do you want to smoke? No, I really wished I could quit. And then you just tell them, hey, God loves you, and God has something better for you. God can set you free from this. And you can approach it from a love relationship that takes away all the fear and the guilt and a failure over it and stuff like this, and it'll set a person free. I guarantee you, a person that's addicted to anything, whether it's cigarettes or uh, dope or anything, they have a failure complex. An addiction means that they have tried to stop and they can't stop and they can't break it. And by putting condemnation on all it's doing is making the thing worse. If you'll come along and, and reassure a person of how much God loves you, God loves you right in the midst of your shooting up dope. God loves you. You don't have to quit shooting dope for God to love you. You're just going to kill yourself. You're the dope. <laughs> Say, God loves you. God's got something better. You don't have to get high on this. Expose them to God's love. And that person, you know, they can, they can, quit, they can come off that old wine and get on new wine. Amen? There's something better than that old wine. There's something better than a high that leaves you and destroys your life and costs you a bunch of money. And that's getting into the love of God. We're trying to break addiction over people's lives and get things out of their life but not filling them with anything. You get full of the love of God and you'll find out that people won't want to go out and dope and get drunk and do all these other things because they're so full of God. Why would I want to do any of these other things? They don't satisfy reason you're so drawn to something else is because it's more satisfying than nothing that you've been full of. You get full of the love of God and you'll find out that, man, these other things don't even compete. Amen or oh me. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we've had it all backwards. We've been thinking that if I'll just do good, then I'll be good. No, it's the opposite. You have to let God just transform you and receive this love of God as a gift. Let God reveal His love to you. And then once you experience that love, you'll find out that the Christian life, it's not you, but it's Christ living in you. It's like rivers of living water flowing out of you. It's not like one of these old pumps that you just pump, 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 and you work and work, and about the time you finally get a little squirt, you have to rest, and you lose your prime. That's the way a lot of people's life are. Just every once in a while, they get just a little squirt of the Holy Ghost in their life. Just enough blessing to know that there's something there, but it's just struggle, 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 struggle. From one tragedy to the next. The Bible says in John chapter 7, He says, But the life that I give you will be in you a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. It just flows out of you. That's what's available to you. But you are the one that initiates it. Well, if you missed what I was saying this morning, one of the statements, I just want to repeat this, and I'll close with this, but God exists independent of your thinking. He's greater than what you think. But as far as your experience goes, you will not experience any more of God than the way you think about Him. If your mind is unrenewed in an area, you will experience the way you think. Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. 
If you think God is up there reproving of sin and judging you over every sin and telling you how unrighteous you are, and if you see God that way, and if you see God as, I've got to walk in love and do good, and if I'll do all of these things, then God will love me, and then God will dwell in me. If that's the way you think, it's going to sever you from this unconditional type of love. There has to be a change in your thinking. That's the reason I've been ministering what I've been ministering tonight, trying to tell you that God's love is just for you, independent of what you've done. God's love for you is awesome. Instead of you trying to earn it, it's something that you just receive it as a gift. And then, once you experience it, once you really begin to know that God loves you and that God is pleased with you, not pleased with you based on performance, but just pleased with you because God is a loving, kind God and He has good thoughts towards you. Jeremiah 29, 11. If you ever get the revelation of that, then you'll find out that the Christian life is simple. Super simple. You'll never have to motivate yourself and psych yourself up to go talk to somebody and witness to them. It'll flow out of you. You'll fall so in love with the Lord that immediately you'll want to share this love with somebody else. You'll have joy in your heart. You won't have to force yourself to witness. I actually found myself one time out pumping gas when it was, I mean, raining cats and dogs. It was terrible. Now, there I was pumping gas and the service station attendant felt so star- sorry. He came out with all his wet gear on. And he says, I'll pump gas for you. He says, this is a sorry day. And I just, I didn't plan this. I didn't sit down and figure all this out. I just said, oh, what a beautiful day. This guy looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I had to witness so he wouldn't think I was crazy. I had to tell him why I was happy and why I was blessed. It just flows out of you. You don't have to pump it out. Amen? And the good news is God wants to reveal His love to you more than you want to know it. But it's going to start with you. You know, I talk to myself. I've got these little stickers. Matter of fact, I'll bring one of these tomorrow night. I've got some with me. But we made up these little stickers that are transparent. It's got a heart drawn on it, and inside it says, Look who Jesus loves. And you put those on mirrors. My youngest son, Peter, when he was about seven or eight years old, he went around with lipstick on the mirrors in our house and started drawing these hearts and writing, Look who Jesus loves on it. And it ministered to us so much, we made a little sticker out of those, static clean sticker. You can stick it on any surface and look at it. And you know, I look in a mirror and tell myself that God loves me. Before I came here tonight, I looked in the mirror and talked to myself. Some of you think that's weird. But you know what? God doesn't talk to me in an audible voice. I believe that He can. I believe that He does on occasions, but He has never talked to me in an audible voice. God talks to me in my voice. I haven't got time to explain this. I could get off and teach a whole series on this. But, you know, God will speak to you through your thoughts. And most of us won't let God love us. Because we think, I don't want to manufacture this. I don't want to psych myself up. I don't want to make this happen. If God loves me, then God, here I am. Reveal yourself to me. I dare you to bless me. (laughs) And we just wait on God to love us. That's not the way it comes. You know what? I stand in front of a mirror and I say, Boy, God loves you. God's got your picture in His billfold. God's pleased with you. Not because you're pleasing, but just because God's a good God. I talk to myself. Until I believe it. Amen. Some of you think, well, how could you do that? Because the Bible says it. God loved me so much that He sent His Son for me. You know, I had an experience 
back when I was um, just turned on to the Lord, and I used to drive 40 miles to go to church one way. And so on Sunday, I'd drive over there, and then I'd stay all afternoon and stay for the Sunday night service, and then I'd drive back. And I'd stay with people in their homes and eat with them, things like this. And um, this is only when I was 18 or 19 years old. And there was a uh, family that I stayed with that had a daughter that was just about my age, and she hated Christians. And she particularly, out of all the Christians on the face of the earth, hated me more than anybody else. (laughs) And every time she knew I was coming, she just vacated. She was gone. And anyway, I was over at these people's house, and I was sleepy. And they said, well, go up and take a nap. And it was in this girl's bedroom. So I went up there, and I was laying on her bed taking a nap. And somebody walked in the room and opened the door. You could hear the door latch and the creak on the thing. And they walked in. And when I heard them, my first thought was that this is this girl coming back. She had to come into this room to get something. And I knew she did not want to see me. I did not want to see her. So I just played possum. I just laid there on the bed and acted like I was asleep. And I heard them walk around the room. And they walked over and opened up the closet and did some things, walked around the room, and then they walked up and stood beside the bed. I could hear them breathing. And I was, I was by then, I was thinking, I don't want to open my eyes. And then they sat down on the bed and leaned across the bed and put their arm across me and leaned over and kissed me right on the lips. Man, when that happened, I opened my eyes. And guess what? There was nobody in the room. Nobody was there, and yet I was wide awake. And I thought to myself, I said, God, what is this? My first thought was, that's the Lord. And immediately I said, that couldn't be God. God was to walk in here. He had slapped me. He had rebuked me. I, you know, I wasn't doing everything I knew that I should. And I just thought, man, God would be on my case. No way would God kiss me. And then I had the thought come to me. He says, if I loved you enough to die for you, don't you think that I'd love you enough to kiss you? And you know, it took me over 10 years before I ever shared that with anybody because I thought, who am I? And I still know that compared to other people, there's nothing special about me, but I know that God loves me. I have become convinced of it, and you cannot convince me that He doesn't. And because of it, things work in my life. The Bible says, Galatians 5, 6, faith works by love. If you're having trouble with faith, you're having trouble with love. If you really understood how much God loved you, you would not have any trouble with faith. How can somebody that loved you enough to die for you let you die of cancer? I guarantee you God's going to heal you. God's going to set you free. The only reason that it doesn't happen is because people don't believe and faith is dependent upon your love. There's some of you that have never really understood how much God loves you and because of it you're struggling in the area of faith. You're struggling in all these areas. There's just one thing that's needful, and that is for you to get a revelation of how much God loves you. And if you ever understand that, I guarantee you, you'll find out that the Christian life is a breeze. Amen? God will just flow through you. Love will change your life. Praise God.